0: So after six years of being single, Grace Gelder decided to do something pretty radical. She proposed to herself on a park bench in Parliament Hill. Later, she got married to herself in Devonshire in the UK. She told The Guardian, one of England's most famous papers, that her inspiration was taken from a line from a Bjork song, "Isobel, my name is Isabel, married to myself. In 2015, Obergefell v. Hodges, the Supreme Court case, radically redefined marriage in the United States where a man can marry a man or a woman can marry a woman. In light of Obergefell and Hodges, there are now cases in the legal system to legalize polygamy. But believe it or not, polygamy now is even seen as too conservative, and many are favoring the more free and no legally binding relationships of polyamorous relationships. A few years ago, I had some friends that attended a wedding, and every individual in the wedding party was wearing some kind of bizarre costume. They had their friend officiate the wedding. All the vows were nothing but inside jokes, and the music was sung by a man in an orange leisure suit. To say nothing of what you would get if you Googled strange marriages or weird weddings. I mean, I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. There is something seriously wrong with the way our society is understanding marriages today. If something can be anything, then it stands to reason that it's actually nothing. But is that what marriage is? Is marriage actually meaningless? We all know that's not the case. Everyone involved in the debate and the cultural dialogue knows marriage matters. But what is it? Is marriage just a social construct? Is it something that society or individuals like us in this room, we decide what it is and therefore define the shape and size and look of it? Is marriage just about personal fulfillment? So as long as it satisfies those those kind of physical, cultural, emotional, psychological, sexual goods, we're fine. Is marriage just a contract? You do your bit, I do my bit, everything's okay. Is marriage some combination of all three of these or something entirely different? And if it is, how do we know what it is and how do we get better at it? Because our culture is so confused, it seems like a good idea that we back up and look at God's Word to see what it has to say. So this summer, as Jesus says, we're starting a series beginning this morning called The Grace of Life, Planting Seeds for a Marriage That Matters. And what I want to do this morning and next week is I want to lay the foundation, the biblical foundation. What does the Bible say? What does God say a marriage is? And and does it have a point and a purpose and a particular shape to it? And then we'll continue that next week. I won't be able to get to say say everything this morning. We'll pick that up next week. And after the foundation's laid, for the next six weeks after that, we'll address topics that we're all going to face in our marriages, communication, uh, conflict, children, intimacy, all those kinds of things. Now, I want to say a quick word to the non-married amongst us who might be thinking, well, then for the next eight weeks, I'm going to a different church because this has no application to me. It does. This series is applicable to you if any of the following are true of you. You are married, right? This one's obvious. I don't need to say anything more about that. You want to be married, right? The time to think about having a good marriage is not when you're standing at the the platform watching your bride walk down the aisle. The time to think about it is not when you're walking down the aisle. It's now to be prepared. Number three, you're going to be married, right? You're engaged or you're someone serious in your life. You want to think about this well. And then finally you know someone who's married. Okay, so if any of you, if any of that applies to any of you, this series applies to you. Now, the last one, you know someone who's married. This is why this is important. Even if you never get married, why understanding a biblical case for marriage is important. Because one day you might be called upon to help a friend or family member's marriage, and you better know what the Scriptures teach on that so that you counsel them according to Scripture and not to one of the cultural prevailing norms that is messed up or your own personal view that may or may not be right. I was first called upon to help a marriage more than 30 years ago at the age of 19. Yeah, I was a bastion of wisdom on that. (laughs) But you know what? The people I was counseling were just 21 and got married two years earlier, so it was okay. And I cannot tell you, friends, as a pastor, you know, being, doing this for 30 years, how even now to this day, there is no way that the staff elders, the lay elders of this church can move and engage every marriage that needs help in this congregation well. And so we will often go to other people to walk alongside marriages that need help, and I cannot tell you how, how, how encouraging it is, how refreshing it is for families or couples to jump in and do that well, and or how discouraging it is to approach other Christians to help us restore marriages, and they give advice totally contrary to God's Word. So, it's important that we understand what is a marriage, what is God's purposes for marriage. Very few of you, I imagine, were blessed to have a mother, a godly mother or father, give you instruction about what makes a biblical marriage work. If you were lucky, you had a a Christian home and you at least got to see it happening through mom or dad, but there's a good chance that many of us, if not most of us, didn't have any kind of thought out understanding, certainly not a theology of marriage or what the Bible teaches us on marriage as we got into it. There's a good chance that your ideas of marriage was formed either from your own families, watching your own mom and dad, whether that was good or not, your friends' families. Maybe you got older and you started to have friends that get married and you started to watch them. For me, this was kind of the case. I had a horrible theology of of marriage coming from a broken family, a broken home that was just a wreck. Then at the age of 20, I moved into my drummer's apartment where he had just got married to his 19-year-old wife, and and believe it or not, that was one of the best experiences I had. As I watched Ace, my my drummer… love his… he was 20, she was 19, loving his wife as best as this young man could, fighting through all of his immaturities and her immaturities, and there I was sharing their apartment, watching it all happen. It was wonderful. Not ideal, but wonderful. Uh, Another one is… Our own wants and desires. We go into our marriages with our own thoughts of what we want marriage to be like, depending on this, what we might have experienced up here and our own desires. And then finally, a lot of us, whether we'll admit to it or not, are shaped by pop culture and the media and a lot of times what we see on TV, right? So what do we grow up with? The Simpsons yeah, Homer's a good example of a godly husband, right? Married with children, Ed Bundy, family guy, modern family, all in the family. Remember Archie Bunker? Uh, Archie Bunker. Uh, And then everybody loves Raymond or fresh off the boat. There's a good chance that this is what's formed much of our understanding of marriages. And so, it's no wonder why we are a little bit confused on this. We kind of hope that our bits and pieces… Match with their bits and pieces, right? So you bring your bits, hoping that they match with her pieces. She brings her pieces, hoping they match with your bits. You can see why marriage is in a confusing place. It can be challenging, and so we need to bring some clarity to this topic. So what I want to give you this morning is is what I think is probably a good biblical definition of marriage. Now I'm going to be honest with you. It's not flashy. It's not easily to memorize. It's kind of a mouthful. But I wanted to put all the components of what the Bible says a marriage is. So here we go. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of fellowship between a man and a woman given by God as a witness to his character and glory. Now, there are many other scriptures I could have put up on the screen, especially from the prophets, believe it or not. But I wanted to use a couple main scriptures that most of you would be familiar with, and we might look at, uh, we'll look at most of them this morning as well. So, marriage is a lifelong covenant. A lifelong covenant of fellowship between a man and a woman, given by God as a witness to His character and for His glory. Now, three truths will flow from that one statement that directly impact how we understand and enjoy our marriages. Number one, marriage is a covenant, and we're going to we're going to talk about all these this morning. And for for example, to run with our metaphor. In one way, shape, or form for the next eight weeks, these three principles are going to weave themselves through everything we talk about. Imagine this as a, the, the framework of the garden that we're going to be planting seeds in, right? So these things, maybe not directly showing up every week, but they'll be there. Number one, marriage is a covenant. This speaks to the permanence of the union. This morning, I'm going to talk a lot about the covenant aspect of it, and we'll talk about the permanence of that uh, perhaps uh, next week, a little bit this morning, but mostly next week. Marriage is a fellowship. This speaks to our participation, how we actually interact with one another in the relationship, right? We're going to talk about that. And then finally, marriage is a witness. This is probably the most radical, radical aspect of a Christian view of marriage. We, at the end of the day, do not see marriage as something that's all about us in its final, uh, final form, but it's actually about something else. And that speaks to the purpose of a marriage. Marriages have a purpose. So, this morning… We're going to address the the permanence, participation, and purpose of the marriage. So let's talk talk about, let's plant that first seed, okay? The first seed is that marriage is a covenant, focusing on that aspect. Now, let me make an important distinction this morning. When I say that marriage is a covenant, I don't want you to think contract. And and it's important to highlight because if you are a Christian and you've been in churches, you, you probably agree and you've heard this concept that marriage is a covenant But in our society, when we hear covenant, I mean, really, the only time you hear covenant is maybe like your HOA or something like that, HOA. I mean, we don't use that word very often, all right? And your experience of your HOA is probably not that good. So when we say covenant, we tend to think contract, but they are different. Now, I don't want to lose you, those of you especially are kind of hoping for a more emotional or romantic talk about marriage. Marriage is so much more than a legal agreement. I understand that, right? Okay. But it's not less than this, so we need to at least address this point. Now, here's why it's really important to understand the difference between a covenant and a contract. Here it is. Can a contract become null and void? Yes. It's very easy for that to happen. If either one of the parties fails to uphold their end of their agreement, the other party is released from the obligations of the contract. So, thought that way, in a society that views marriages as a contract, if they even do hold that kind of view of it, when one member fails to live up to their end of the agreement, what's the alternative? Divorce, because the the contract is null and void at this point. And friends, when we look at marriages in this kind of uh, contract mentality, we become very legalistic in how we relate to one another. The marriage can be a lot along the lines of a, a framework of legalism. You do the dishes, I mow the lawn. I cook the meals, you clean the table. Right? I wash the cars, you do the laundry. But what happens when I do the dishes and you didn't mow the lawn? What happens when I cook the meal and you didn't clean up? What happens when I do the laundry and you don't wash the cars? Or, 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 a thousand contractual infractions. And you start to look at each other in this kind of performance-based legalistic mentality. You see, that's the problem of a a marriage as contract view. It's about making sure that we're each doing what the other person is supposed to be doing, and the problem with that is it's inherently conditional, and it inevitably leads to disappointment. Think about it. It's not that hard to figure it out. Why does it lead to disappointment? because you will eventually fail to perform your end of the agreement and get defensive about it, so when your spouse brings it up, you're going to get all defensive about it, or inevitably you will perform your end of the agreement and you get or pride, prideful, prideful because of it. So either when you fail or succeed, you become defensive or proud. Neither one of those is a good ingredient for a healthy marriage, is it? And so when you look at a marriage in this kind of conditional contract way, you're already setting yourself up, for problems because you'll be either defensive or you become proud of how you're conducting your end of the deal. See, that's what a contract mentality, that's where it leads us. A covenant, on the other hand, is very different. Unlike a contract that is based on a framework of of performance and legalism, a covenant is based on a framework of grace and giving. A covenant partner keeps covenant even if the other partner fails, or at the very least falters. It's a very big difference. The reason one enters into a covenant is to be a blessing, not necessarily to receive a blessing. I just want to show you one. Uh, Open your Bibles. Go to Genesis chapter 15. This is one of those kinds of passages, if you understand Uh, ancient, well, if you understand Asian culture or Oriental culture or even the ancient cultures, it's mind-boggling. And if you don't have that background, you're just totally stumped as to what's going on. So, let me unpack that for you. Genesis 15, what we have here as you turn there is God is speaking to Abram, and He's making a covenant with Abram. And, 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 and while marriage is a covenant, it's not identical to all covenants in the ancient Near East. One of the dynamics they had there was uh, that oftentimes a, an inferior would get into covenant with a superior, and most of the, the burden was on the inferior, and that's different in marriage. But what I want to show you here is that you have a superior putting all the obligations of the covenant on himself and not the inferior. It's mind-blowing. Genesis 15, chapter, oh, excuse me, verse 9. So, God's speaking to Abram about making a covenant, a promise, a covenant with Abram. And he says this, God said to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought, th- brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut, cut the birds in half. Now, I want you to skip down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through the pieces of of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay, and there, what's happening here? Now, the verses in between, so you know I'm not handling the Word of God loosely, is he, he, God tells Abram, He prophesies to Abram that your people are going to spend 400 years in captivity as slaves in Egypt, and then, then makes the covenant with them. So that's what's happening in the intervening verses. But what's taking place? God says, Abram, we're going to enter a covenant with you, so let, let's, make, let's ratify this covenant. Get, a, get, a, get some animals, a heifer, a ram, cut them in two, and put them on either side, pile the carcasses on top of each other. And then in verse 17, in this vision, Abraham sees what is symbolic of God's presence, the light, the torch, moving between the carcasses of the animals, and then he makes a covenant with Abram. What God is saying is that, let it be done to me what has been done to these animals if I fail to keep my covenant with you. That is massive. God is saying, let it be done to me as we slaughter these animals and put them apart and I walk through them. You can do to me what was done to them if I fail my covenant to bless you. Covenants are entered into to be a blessing, not to receive one. And in our more traditional vows, which even those have kind of gone the way of of the buffalo in, in marriages, there was a line that alluded to this fact Maybe some of you remember it. To have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse I was alluding to this reality that I am in this for you. Now, numerous passages in scriptures, God gives us the model of covenant keeping in Himself, and we're going to look at one or two of those. Uh, but, but most vividly, we see this displayed in God's persistence to, to keep His covenant of redemption for us, to, to save us. So let's take a look at the Old Testament here, or one in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, You there know, therefore, that the Lord your God is a God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. In Romans chapter 3, What if some were unfaithful? Speaking of his covenant people, right? Paul's talking about the Jews. What if they were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul says. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Here's a perfect example where Paul's saying, "What? well, what about if your covenant people don't uphold their end? Does Does that nullify the contract? And the Lord's like, no, you don't understand. That's not how this works. I'm making a covenant. Everyone else can be a liar, but I must be true. And then finally, a passage many people are familiar with, 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, God remains faithful. What's the grounds of His faithfulness? Look at the next phrase. For He cannot deny Himself. The grounds of God's covenant faithfulness is His own character. Here's my point, friends. The point is, in order for our marriages to flourish, they have to be rooted in grace and giving not legalism and receiving. Husbands, wives, in order for your marriage to flourish, you have to have a framework of grace and giving to your spouse, not a framework of legalism, right, counting the tallies and receiving from them. The driving question isn't how much of their obligations are they doing. The driving question is how much of God's covenant faithfulness am I displaying? Let me say that again. The driving question you should ask yourself if you're a married man or woman is not how much of the contract my spouse is keeping, but how much of God's covenant faithfulness I'm displaying, because that's what a covenant about is about, a covenant that says, I am bound to be a blessing to you like God is bound to be a blessing to you me. I am in this, husband or wife, you're saying to your spouse, not primarily for my good, but I'm in this for your good, as God is in it for my good. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week, but that's the first seed. I want to plant that, that our relationships are a covenant to be a blessing, not a contract to receive something from someone else. The second seed uh, is that marriage is a fellowship, and this speaks to our participation. One of the best, best marriage books out there, Lori and I love it, uh, it's called When Sinners Say I Do. It's the book that we recommend often when we do premarital counseling because it puts on the table a really important truth, and that is marriage is a fellowship between two flawed, sinful, broken people pointing themselves daily to their Savior. And I love that concept. I know, I know that doesn't sound really romantic and the, you don't get the butterflies going when you think about that, right? This is, this is not what Hollywood puts out there. But guys, I can't think of a more true kind of way to express it than that. When sinners say, I do. When you think about it, when, I, when I'm doing a marriage, I, I tell them, okay, first of all, husband, you realize you are a sinner. Yes, okay. You're self-centered, selfish, and self-absorbed. Yes. Okay, you realize, wife, you are a sinner that's self-centered, selfish, and self-absorbed. Yes. And you really want to be stuck with each other, right? they say, yes. I go, but that's not it. That's not where it ends. You two sinners are now bound to each other, and you can never get away. And guess what happens next? She's going to give birth because of you to little sinners, and they're all over your house. You really want to do this? Yes okay, let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. I know I'm joking here, but I'm building something up, and that's that second point that marriage is a fellowship, right? You're like, what kind of fellowship is that? It's a participation. A few years ago, I was reading in the Atlantic Journal, and, and they talked about the changing trends in marriages today, and they used two really helpful metaphors that I thought was genius. And they basically used the metaphor of a cornerstone versus a capstone and the, to, to mark how culture is changing. The cornerstone view of marriage was that your marriage is the bedrock upon which you build your lives on together to face many of life's struggles and challenges, the ups and downs, the goods and bads, the uncertainties, all those things that you face together and you mature and you grow and you're transformed as a couple and as a family. That's the cornerstone view of marriage. They say that now, though, The Atlantic was writing that there's a change that's happening subtly in our culture that we view marriage not as a cornerstone, but as a capstone. Marriage isn't the foundation you build your life upon. Marriage is now seen as a reward for you living your life wisely and as a way to kind of treat yourself to enjoy all of life's goodness. Now, to be clear, they're both a kind of fellowship, aren't they? But the goal of one is enjoyment, whereas the goal of the second is growth and transformation. And this is a really important distinction. Because with a cornerstone mentality, friends, the very struggles of life, The very challenges you have, the difficulties that you have together with each other and in your life are the means by which, and now I'm departing from the Atlantic article because they're not talking about this, but the the means by which Christ is revealing in His severe mercy the immaturities of your heart the insecurities of yourself, and all those things that he wants to wonderfully expose in a covenant relationship where that person's not going to leave you so that you can become more like him. But in a capstone mentality of your marriage, you will see those exact same things as the actual problems in your relationship that are hindering your personal fulfillment, you see, these are two radically different ways of looking at marriage. I'll never forget. Now, I'm a proud, pride, proudful guy. I'm, I'm just a guy, but I'm also just, I don't know, I'm, I'm proudful. Pride, am I using that right word? Proudful? Prideful? prideful. I'm prideful. Uh, <laughs> they say never use the pulpit as a therapy thing, but so let me be careful. So, I'm a prideful guy, right? Hi, my name's Rick Roadiever. I'm prideful. Um, I didn't realize how much and how pervasive and how exhaustive my pride is until I got married. I never put my identity in being what I call a gearhead, you know, guys who work on cars. I never put my identity there until one night when we, my wife and I, Lori, were married and we moved to the Midwest in January and I had to work on the car. So we find ourselves in mid-Missouri, that's where we're living, in a Walmart in the tools tool aisle. Okay, I love Walmart, but you've seen the Walmart, video people, Walmart people videos, right? Okay, so this is in Missouri. I'm in the tool aisle in winter, and there's Bubba, there's Chuck, there's, there's, I don't know, George or whatever, all looking at tools, and here my wife and I from Orange County, looking like Orange County natives, walking into a mid-Missouri Walmart at night in the tool aisle. You get the picture, right? A lot of flannel, a lot of boots, but not me and Lori, okay? <laughs> and there's a tool, and I bend down to go get the tool... And as I'm reaching out, my wife says in front of Bubba and Chuck and George, th- sweetie, that's the wrong tool. Mm. Okay, so then I kind of slightly try to get the other tool. No, 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 wrong one. That's not the one either. Mm. She goes, do you know which one you need? Oh. <laughs> Bubba and Chuck and George, the, 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 the reputation of masculinity on the line here. I'm like sweetie, I know what I need. I know the tool I need. She goes, well, yeah, but you're in the wrong section. (laughs) Yeah, I knew that too. So, long story short, she just kind of grabs the tool. She goes, this is the one, and walks away as Bubba and Chuck are snickering as I follow my wife. I didn't realize my identity was rooted in being able to pick the right tool until my wife shamed me in front of all the men. And basically, I just, I mean, yeah, I got mad. We talked about it. I just said, honey, and maybe this isn't the best way to work out marital relationships because maybe my, you know, I said, just the next time, let me pick the wrong tool. And then when Chuck and Bubba are gone, we can go back and you can give me the right tool. (laughs) Just kind of help me out here. But we have a covenant and she's going to realize she married a guy who has a lot of deficiencies and she can't go anywhere, right? She's got to deal with it. And I can't go anywhere, and we got to deal with it. That's a covenant. That's why we have a covenant. That's why it's a cornerstone of our lives. Christopher Lash, in his book Haven in a Heartless World, The Family Besieged, was one of the first um, sociologists to contrast the traditional view of marriage as the creation of character and community with the therapeutic view of marriage as the fulfillment of autonomous personal needs. This is what he says. It makes sense how the change has happened. Seeing marriage as a place where two flawed… He's not a Christian, so he's not using the same words I would use, but he's saying, seeing a marriage as a place where two flawed people come together to create a space of stability, love, and consolation, a haven in a heartless world, is a harder sell than seeing marriage as the coming together of two well-adjusted, happy individuals with little emotional neediness of their own or character flaws that need a lot of work. The problem is, there is almost no one like that out there to marry… And that is true. Very, very few of us, if anyone is not in need of work in their character, is not insecure in some ways, is not immature in some ways. And so, the capstone view of marriage has really changed the way people look about marriage. Think about marriage. Think about it, friends. We live in a time in our society where the highest prize that we all have, and th- this this whether you're a Christian or not, you're you're breathing the cultural air. So, you are this way. The only question is to what matter of degree you're this way. Your highest prize is individual freedom, personal autonomy, and personal fulfillment. That's the cultural air we all breathe, right? But if, if you really stop and think about it, if you've ever been in a true love relationship, you know that to make that relationship work means letting go of all three of those, you can't demand your personal freedom and autonomy and your fulfillment and expect to be able to have a, build a loving, loving, committed, sacrificial family. And so we have an irony in our culture. Our culture is telling us the most important thing is your autonomy and your personal fulfillment and your freedom, yet the thing that makes marriage work is the ability to get rid of all of those. And so it's not surprising that there's a dilemma in society. That's why we love that book, When Sinners Say I Do, and by the way, there's a, there's a copy of it in our book spot. Please, don't buy it today, please. I, I put a bunch of, actually, a bunch of books on marriage right in the center of our book spot just to expose you. And if you want to get some on Amazon, please do that, but just, just look at those, and maybe in a couple weeks, if they're still there, you can buy it or take it. I love that book because it puts on the table that while marriage can be a joy, while marriage can be the grace of life, while it can be all these things it comes to the hard work of fighting sin of growing in Christ likeness together of pursuing holiness and learning to love at great cost to yourself friends that sounds painful it sounds hard and it is but that is the beauty of love that's forged from sanctification and really when you think about what is what is the alternative i was reading cs lewis again this week and this is what he writes in the four loves so wise He writes this, love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selflessness, selfishness. But in that casket, Safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to heartache or even the risk of heartache is damnation. Friends, marriage is a fellowship. It is a participation in the beautiful yet painful process of going to, from being a sinner so destroyed and deformed by sin to the beautiful image and likeness of Jesus Himself. And that's a tough road. And that's why God gave us a relationship bound by covenant that can never be broken so that when all that muck comes to the surface, there is a, a, a community to work it through. That's seed number two. Let's look at the final seed, and that is marriage as a witness. And this speaks to the purpose of marriage. And, and in some ways, this is the most uh, Christian perspective I'm going to bring this morning, because at the end of the day, you can hold to the traditional view of commitment, and there are many cultures that do that that are not even Christian. So, so that's not inherently Christian, right? It, it doesn't take rocket science. The research is in, the economic research, the child development research, the psychological research, the sociological research is in, that staying married, remaining married is by order of magnitude much better than not be, or, uh, going through a divorce or separation. So, that doesn't take a Christian perspective. The second seed about participation, while there is a unique sanctification aspect to it, again, common sense knowledge, people know that difficulties can make us better, right? So, that's not uniquely Christian. This third point, though, is uniquely Christian. This is what makes a view of marriage from a Christian distinct and unique. In the definition I gave you earlier, I said our marriages are above all a display of the being and character of God. For that, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible to look at this. And, and as the case, uh, case might be, this is probably the most uh, theological and for sure most abstract aspect of this, but I want you to hang with me. We're, we're wrapping up, but I want you to kind of dial in here because this is the foundation of it all. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, this is what the Lord writes, This passage makes it clear that humanity was to be image bearers of God. To be an image bearer of God simply means to reflect and represent Him. Now, we're not going to get into the nuances of that. It just simply means that as an image bearer of God, which each and every one of us in this room, on this planet, whether or not you acknowledge it, we were made to be the image bearer of God. We were made to reflect and represent Him. And this is true. If you look at ancient Near East cultures, oftentimes the kings, the pharaohs, the the rulers would erect statues of themselves as a means of extending their reign or rule. So, for example, wherever you saw the statues of the pharaohs, wherever you saw the statues of ancient kings, that was to symbolize this is where that king's reign extends to. In the same way, Genesis informs us that humanity was made to image God, and in doing the same thing, wherever you find humanity, you see the king's reign extended there. It was a physical, in some sense, a physical representation of this king's power and authority. So, in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28… God commands His image bearers, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This explains exactly how humanity extends God's glory in His creation. And wherever you find people, there you find the reign and rule of this loving, benevolent, all-knowing God. And in marriages, we create children made in the image of God. And so as humanity fills the earth, God's reign and rule were extended as His image bearers exercise dominion through all of creation. So, we extend God's rule just to the simple process of multiplication, right? The more His image bearers spread, the more the reign of God is practically realized. That's how that works. But how do marriages themselves display God Himself? Let me say that again because they do. How do our marriages themselves display God Himself? How do we fulfill that purpose? And that is by being like Him as man and wife. Let me explain what I mean. The very fountainhead of our faith, friends, is that we have a triune being, a triune God, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this being is a unity in diversity, in community. In other words, there is a fundamental sameness of God, same heart, same mind, same will. They are God co-eternal, co-equal, coexistence. but yet there is a distinction between them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is neither of those. They are completely different in that sense, and they play a thousand different roles in all aspects of our lives. Let me give you one small example in our salvation. God the Father plans it. God the Son secured it. God the Holy Spirit applies it. And so they're all working with the same heart, mind, and will for the same purposes, and they all have different roles. And this happens a thousand ways throughout Scripture, a thousand ways in our lives. And they together are sharing this beautiful community from eternity past to eternity future. And notice in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God says, I'm going to make man in my image. Now, a little technical thing here in the Hebrew, Adam, Adam, right? We we take that technically to mean Adam. Adam means the earth creature, humanity. He says, I'm going to make this earth creature. And he's gonna make the species called humanity or man. And but notice in verse 27 what he says: in order to make Adam the earth creature, they have to be both male and female. Do you notice that? Just, just even in the Hebrew language, he makes Adam, the Hebrew, the earth creature, and he makes them Ish Isha, woman and man, male, female. What's my point here? When God sought to make a species to be, to be, to image him he created a species that have the exact sameness about us. We have a shared humanity. We are exactly the same. Yet at the same time, we are radically different in that we are male and female and could not be more different because of that. And in quickly, in Genesis 1, when he made these Im- image bears, they were brought together as husband and wife. So there is this unity in their humanity, there's a difference in their genderedness, and they're sharing community in their marriage. Just like God. a unity in diversity in community. Our marriages are of themselves are a display and a testimony to the world of this loving, amazing, undescribable being that we have no analog for. And he says, that's why it's permanent. Because I cannot be dissolved. You can't parse me out. I'm a one. Hero O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this image bears, you must be one. That's why this is a covenant. But he also knew that there would be sin And so this covenant, this permanence, has a participation in your fellowship. It's not about just enjoying each other. That is the after effect of seeing how you can be like Christ and fighting through the muck of the sin and selfishness and immaturities and insecurities to be like Jesus so that we can fulfill the purpose, a loving display, a loving display of God Himself. Friends, we'll unpack this a little bit more next week. I tried to do it on the spot first hour and I butchered it, so I'm going to punt that to next week. When we, I'll tell you one thing. Let me just, you want to know how you can serve this church. We, we constantly get new members. Here's the best way you serve this church you love each other fiercely. You love each other fiercely. Just if we do that, we will be the most massive countercultural witness to our world. Yes, we should have panels about AB 329. Yes, we should march for life. Yes, we should do all those things. But what we should do above all else is husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And I'll unpack that a lot next week. How radical a witness the church would be if we all displayed, realizing our purpose is to display the character and purposes of God just in our marriages. It's pretty crazy, right? Pretty intense. That's why you can't do your marriage on your own. That's why it requires the Holy Spirit. That's why it requires brothers and sisters to keep you on track. That's why it requires us understanding what the Word teaches about marriage. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you that in something that we can take for granted, like marriages, as we peel back, we realize, oh, this is so central to your plan of revealing yourself and your existence to this world. And it's no wonder that the enemy just keeps hammering and hammering and hammering at our relationships in every possible way, from polygamy to homosexuality to gender identity crisis. It's not a surprise. Father, our response is, should not be just debates and arguments and policy, but to love one another fiercely, sacrificially, and lovingly. And that's beyond us. But you knew that. So you gave us your word, you gave us your people, and you gave us your spirit. Would you help us have the humility to avail ourselves to all those resources for your glory and our good? In Jesus' name, amen.